it's all really exciting. So back in the 80s, 90s, what Max gave print designers in terms of access to typography. So before that, it had been the domain of typesetters. That's happening again now, now that web fonts are established, now that we've got variable moving type on screen. There's this whole new time of experimentation that just feels really, really exciting with boundaries being pushed, all of those typographic rules being pushed. Hey, everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. Welcome to the weekly Typographic. Our weekly episodes talk about type and design news, but we've got a bonus episode for you today. We're chatting with a designer that's innovating the field through education and their practice. It's going to be fun. Let's jump in. Hi, everyone. Today on the podcast, we have Sarah Heinemann. Sarah is a lot of things. Sarah is a writer, a public speaker, type consultant, and founder of the very unique learning experience, Type Tasting. She's the author of several entertaining books on typography, including Why Fonts Matter and How to Draw Type and Influence People. And as the founder of Type Tasting, she has created multi-sensory installations and interactive workshops designed to challenge our typographic assumptions. Sarah's on a mission to change the way we think and talk about typography by making it fun and exciting for everybody. Her work centers around the psychological impacts of type, exploring topics like how the shape of a letter can influence our taste buds, how a font choice may trigger memories and emotions, and all the ways our subconscious reads letter forms. She has shared her knowledge with audiences at TEDx, South by Southwest, and Adobe Max, and we're thrilled to have her join us today. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to this. So exciting. I mean, I kind of mentioned this to you earlier. We are turned on to all of your work from our lovely contributor, Steph Clark. And after I started seeing some of your work, I just like fell into a rabbit hole and was like, oh my God, the stuff that you're researching, stuff that you're talking about is so unique and you put such an interesting point of view and perspective on things. I think we're just going to have an awesome conversation. And for the people that aren't yet familiar with your work, they're also going to have their minds blown and follow the deep rabbit hole. I am sure. So I kind of wanted to start with my first question, which is for all the people out there that have never heard of type tasting, type tasting is like a lot of things as I've kind of discovered through going through your work. Can you describe it in your own words what it is? So it is really hard to describe, (laughs) but I'll do my best. So the way I would describe it is that type tasting is an ongoing and evolving experimental project that I invite everybody to join me in. I explore culture and the senses through typography. And it began just with research, with me asking questions, all of those questions that you kind of ask inside your head, but you never really necessarily ask out loud while you're working within the design industry. Silly questions like, do fonts really have personalities? And if they do, does everybody see the same personalities as me? All of those things that you just take as assumptions. And then once I started asking the questions, I discovered that the answers weren't always what I expected. And so I think rabbit hole is the perfect description. So I began just by looking into all of that. And the way to get people to answer lots of questions is to throw or to create really big events. So events where it's, I would take what I would call my pop-up typography lab But you can't just make experiments boring. You have to make them really exciting. So if I want to ask you about typeface personalities, I will turn it into a type dating game. So which of these typefaces would you go on a date with? Which would you snog, marry, avoid? Why and why not? 
And you suddenly find that because you've put it in a different context, everybody has an opinion. You don't have to be a designer to have an opinion. And everybody's really surprised at how much of an opinion that they actually have. <laughs> so I started gathering all of this data. And then the book I wanted to read didn't exist. So I wrote it because <laughs> the great thing about being naive and at the beginning of all of this is I didn't know I couldn't write a book. So I just did. <laughs> now I, I know that. better. <laughs> It was a massive, massive undertaking, yeah, <laughs> which I can talk about more later. Um, so I, I kind of had this idea from the outset. It's always been about making typography exciting for everybody, dragging it out of that kind of dusty, boring, intellectual kind of cupboard that it seems to sit in. Um, I was interviewed by the editor of Design Week years ago, and he said, oh, typography is no, never going to be sexy. And that I decided, right, that's our mission. Let's make typography sexy. <laughs> And so I just started with, so it's experiments, then the book, and then events, and now it's installations, workshops. So it just changes. So that's why I can't describe it, because it, it's constantly evolving into something new. Every time there's a new question, it's, it's like, oh, let's go and find that out. It sounds like it kind of evolved from a curiosity that wasn't being answered anywhere else. And the installations and events and workshops that I'm sure you've experienced virtual and in person, I haven't experienced anything like that. Uh, you know, it's not it's not a type lecture on the evolution of Baskerville. It's not anything that you would expect. It's totally different. And then how has the reaction from the type community at large been to your work? Is it a lot of like, oh my God, like haven't seen that before? And I think the fact that you're making it so accessible and fun is so important in a field that's known for being so ugh, just a drag sometimes, which it's not. <laughs> I find most of the type community is really excited about it because at the end of the day, we all love typography. And any time that you can sit and geek out on it is wonderful. Um, it's a little bit strange for me standing up on a stage sometimes in front of some, you know, I've now met pretty much all of my heroes and it's terrifying to stand there and see them in the front row when I'm just talking about something that I invented in my studio a few years ago. But no, but everybody is incredible. It's also a really generous community. So everybody has been really welcoming and they're really excited that I, they, a lot of people will let me play with their typefaces, incorporate them into the things I'm doing, which I think is really quite wonderful as well. That's exciting. And I think, you know, talking about the evolution of typography, the place we are today is so interesting. And I always love mentioning that this accessibility to learning type is very broad now. The very global nature of typography is expanded to a way it's never been before. Do you ever feel overwhelmed being like, oh my God, there's so much going on. I know you kind of dissect some of the trends going on within typography by looking at the cultural zeitgeist, by looking at history. But how do you feel about the state of typography these days? I think it's incredibly exciting. Um, so I started type tasting in 2013. And for years, I was banging on about stop using neutral sans serifs, everybody, there's something more <laughs> exciting out there. And finally, it's happened. <laughs> so and yes, I completely understand that it can get a little bit overwhelming. There, there really is so much happening. And I think that's partly why it's really useful. There are so many people um, at the moment looking at trends. So it's not just me, people like Monotype, um, quite a few of the other type foundries are exploring trends. And I think that's really helpful just to give a little bit of structure or a little bit of direction in what can feel like a really overwhelming kind of clamour of just so many different voices. But the thing that really interests me isn't specifically 
the trends. It's actually taking a step back and thinking about what's happening culturally. How do we feel today? And how is this being reflected through... Um, so for me, it's through the medium type of typography. Other people, it would be through photography, through language. So I think of typography as kind of the voice of culture. And if you look over history, you can see there are so many eras, especially eras where there's lots of change happening, that you look at the typography and you can pinpoint exactly what that era was. And also it kind of conveys the mood or the anxieties of that zeitgeist. So for me, I think... Rather than it's not so much about the trends, it's about looking at what they're reflecting. And if you pick any particular thing, so a thing I've been looking at recently is the duality of the human experience, I get how I guess how we at the moment we live in a world that feels really quite not particularly safe necessarily, versus we all want comfort, and especially at home, we're filling our homes with comfort and so knowing that that duality is happening, then looking around at typography and actually seeing how that's reflected in the voices that we're using to talk about culture. So again, I think that's a way of undoing the overwhelm. So you just pick one particular theme, work out what it is, and then you can kind of see a path through it. Does that make sense? Totally. I was so obsessed. So you run a type tasting curiosity club for some Patreon members for a small amount every month can kind of get access to your research and your findings. And duality was one of your most recent decode zines. And I was just blown away because you talked about that concept of we're in a world that feels so polar opposite to what we desire these days. And there's that tension and seeing that tension in typefaces and logos and type that feels really soft and warm and huggable and <laughs> very approachable. We're thinking like our Cooper Blacks, our souvenirs, even more modern example would maybe be like Chi by Ono Type Co. And then we have other sharp type uh, kind of if I think of like the Guardian logo or the Medium logo that has that really chiseled sharp edge. It's like we're telling you facts, even if it's not what you want to hear. We have the truth here. And also the idea of text being truth speakers is something that we've never had to consider before that we are also considering these days as fake news is something that we're existing upon. So um, I think that your work is is so inspiring for us to really be thinking about exactly what personalities the type can take. And sometimes it's really fun uh, exercise. And then other, other times you can go into, you know, much more serious thought provoking ideas. You've talked about, um, I believe in your TED speech about how you were, were you approached to design tobacco packaging and kind of how you thought through that? Through my career, I, I began, so I'm completely self-taught. I began as a sign maker and screen printer and then started freelancing for lots of big companies. And one of the companies I freelanced for for a while was a PR company. And that was all kind of fine and dandy. And as a rookie designer, you give me a project, I'd be really excited about coming up with an amazing creative solution. But as time went on, I started to question, hang on, my solution might be amazing, but I want to think more about who I'm working for and the messages. And then when a project came in and it was for a tobacco company, that was the moment I thought, actually, I really don't want to do this. I don't want to come up with a brilliant, amazing design solution to promote something that actually I think is kind of wrong. So that was a kind of really big pivotal moment in my career where I sort of stepped away from doing that. And 
found a way that I could work with more autonomy over the kind of clients that I work with. Yeah, I think that is a great example of typography being used for good or for bad and that being in the hands of the typographer, of the designer, because you can go ahead and make tobacco look like the coolest thing ever with some font choices and design choices. And it's just, it's that moment where you kind of step back and be like, okay, bigger picture. How is this impacting? And that's like our natural inclination too, right? Whether we're self-taught or taught in a school or taught as an apprentice somewhere, it's almost like the job of a designer is to make the best possible thing that you can make. And that's like inherent in the work that we're trying to do. I mean, I'm sure true for any industry, but in this instance, that's a really interesting point that you were like, you know what? I don't want to do good work for those types of things. But I think there's um, this is a conversation that so I had the best year last year once I'd moved online and I, I started doing lots and lots of these online workshops. So I had conversations with people around the world who I wouldn't otherwise have met. And this was a conversation that kept a theme that kept running through was should a designer always make something look amazing? So when back, so back when I was first starting design, I had a friend who had a band. Um, I won't name, mention their name. And I did their album cover. And he showed me some of their reviews and two or three of the reviews were amazing cover, shame about the music. (laughs) (laughs) But it started this conversation about, should you be really honest about the thing that you're designing for? Should I have designed a mediocre cover? (laughs) 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 Sorry, um, Angus. (laughs) (laughs) If you are listening, I'll buy you a drink later. And I've already had this conversation with him anyway. (laughs) But also if you're designing for a supermarket product, you don't want to make everything that look the most expensive. Sometimes you are just designing a cheap, cheerful budget brand. So this desire as designers always to make things look really amazing and also to design with this very specific Western minimalist design style that we've all been taught. Is it actually appropriate to apply this to everything? So I think just stepping back and having a little bit of critical thinking about design as a process or design as an industry is a really important thing for us to be doing right now. I think some of us are starting to realize lately that this minimalist design aesthetic, I love that you called it Western because it it grows out of a certain Western set of ideas and maybe design culture. And what have you noticed about this as someone that's taking a magnifying glass to some of the aesthetics around us? I think that everything goes in cycles. So we had sort of 80s, 90s, all of that experimental stuff once Max had been invented. And there were all those conversations about the cult of the ugly, had David Carson, Neville Brody, the Face magazine. And then everything went really, really minimalist. And in, for the last 10 years, it's felt really like those kind of what um, a lot of type designers would call millennial sans serifs, those very geometric stripped back typefaces they really were the voice of apps and of technology and hey look this is really cool I'm a a kind of amazing new app which was really shiny and exciting for a while and a lot of new designs would come along and it was yeah it was just the language of that time but we've moved on from that we're now not particularly impressed by apps and in fact we're starting to question the dominance of the companies as well so that whole minimalist, neutral kind of thing that seems to accompany every time there's a new technology um, starting to be embraced. Um, Now we're coming past that. It feels like, I don't know what you think, it feels like we've got this amazing time of experimentation, maximalism, just embracing all of these different things, but also asking questions about appropriation. So not just picking up 
trends from elsewhere or from past times without actually thinking them about them a little bit more seriously. What do you think? What have you been seeing? I think that's very interesting. I think that in Why Fonts Matter, you kind of mentioned that at some point people look at letter forms and already connect that with an existing connotation in their mind. So maybe they'll see a new brand form that is all sans serif geometric lowercase or something. And they're like, oh, that's like all these millennial brands. And I think that's hurtful for a lot of companies in a way, because you don't want to be associated with everyone else. Having a logo, having a distinct brand identity um, will help you stand out from the crowd. It's bold. It's risky. I can imagine there's a lot of tech companies that don't even feel comfortable doing anything but like a sans serif all lowercase logo because they want to make sure that maybe people trust them or already have an existing notion that they are of the time and they get what they're talking to with other people. It, it is a bolder move to kind of use more experimental ways to describe a brand or even for packaging. I think it's interesting. I work in packaging design. Oftentimes we're working on a very, we're working on brands that are approachable to the everyday person. They're not sold necessarily at high-end natural food stores. And our designs will get killed if they look too premium. If things look too nice, if the design is too good and it doesn't look like it belongs in a grocery store in a million grocery stores around America, it will get killed. So I think that that is such a interesting insight that I might not have known previously before working in packaging or working in branding, but it applies to so much design out there. Yeah, there's huge amounts of design out there. And once you, as a type consumer, so all of us are type consumers when, when we're off duty, if you're walking around a shop, picking what you want to have for dinner, okay, you're going on, you're so maybe it's date night, you're going to go for those premium, you're going to look for those minimalist, or though you know exactly what the language of premium is. But if you're not, if you're just, it's just a quick midweek, cheap and cheerful meal, you absolutely navigate your way around the shop by the visual codes that you're expecting. So if a designer has gone and if any of us as designers um, have really enjoyed ourselves and made these really premium designs, the right customer won't even see them because you've, you've just, there's so much visual overload when you go into a shop that you, we are really good at human beings as just filtering out what we want to see and filtering out everything else. So you walk in with, you already know there's a certain typographic palette, color palette, photographic palette, and those are the only packages you're going to look at. And I find that so fascinating. I think there's another interesting leg of this, too, where you sort of referenced the past most recent chunk of history that was sort of rebellious design, right? Like with David Carson. And I certainly remember learning about how to uh, like go to a physical copy machine and, you know, make something that was all messed up and then scan it back in and then mess it up another time and, and that sort of thing. And you're right, I think, on the nose that the prevalence of apps and technology in our everyday life had started this then trend that was a rebellion against the rebellion of making things very clean cut and straightforward and just like minimal, like you were describing. And then we're now starting to see this sort of TikTok rebellion. It's now the revenge of the rebellion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's, you know, I think a lot of it is associated with Gen Z. And I think a lot of that is, you know, reacting to, to growing up in that sort of thing and doing a new version, like a new, we grew up with technology version of cut, copy, paste, scan, mess it up and go crazy. And I'm now seeing not just like products and shops, but I think also a lot of the tech companies 
want to stay relevant. And so they're like, well, that's the new trend. So we have to design for that, which is, you know, then going to start another rebellion in 20 years. (laughs) But it's all really exciting. So back in the 80s, 90s, what Max gave print designers in terms of access to typography. So before that, it had been the domain of typesetters. That's happening again now, now that web fonts are established, now that we've got variable moving type on screen, there's this whole new time of experimentation that just feels really, really exciting with boundaries being pushed, all of those typographic rules being pushed, like now you're squishing type so it looks really ugly, doing the stuff that maybe the face magazine was doing all that time ago breaking that rule about the number of fonts you can have on one page before people's heads explode. So just all of the rules are now gone in certain categories. So different category expectations will let you play and experiment in different ways. And going back, I think, to the the tech brands, there's quite a few understanding and changing. There's quite a few that aren't doing the minimalist sans serif things. So people like MailChimp using a version of what looks a bit like souvenir, or maybe it is souvenir. So those blobby serifs giving them a human voice because it's about human and you're writing writing in your own voice and your own newsletters. I saw, oh, there was a thing, there's an online thing called The Polite Type, which is about... It's an online portal that it's about discouraging bullying. So if you type bullying words, it will replace them with comments like, are you sure you're meant to type that? Or it'll replace them. It'll make them politer. So that is an online kind of app. And then there's also things like, and I saw things like an insurance company, and all of these are using what look at first glance like very minimalist, neutral sans serifs. But then when you look closer, they're those ones with the big ink traps, those big kind of slightly wiggly, wavy holes inside them. So from a distance, they look very corporate. And then you look closer, and they have that kind of human curviness inside them. So it's, again, speaking with a human voice, but just the way this is evolving. And in some instances, it just has to nudge rather than completely change. Good point. I have to look for these insurance companies now. I had no idea. <laughs> um, kind of pivoting back to when you were talking about when you were a graphic designer, like in practice, I think you do so much valuable work now. I mean, in general, one of my favorite phrases is be true to your work and your work will be true to you. I feel like you have dug into what you are the most interested in and you are so devoted to it. It's really gifts to the world of all your knowledge and all your insight. And I think that's so important. But you used to be a graphic designer. You had your own design studio for 10 years. 2013 is when you decided to start type tasting. Did you like full stop on your graphic design career and go into type tasting? Or like, how did that transition go? That seems like a passion project that really paid off for you. Yeah, so I'd worked my way through up through freelancing, then accidentally found myself running this design studio because that's what's, what happens once you gather clients. And then I had a business partner and people working for me. There was this, this really natural pause where... Long-term clients, there's always a cycle once things change. And there was a moment where enough clients had changed where I had the chance to think, I could take a year out right now. I could either go back and hustle for more clients or I could just pause. And so I just thought, I'm going to take one year out. And this time, rather than going and traveling around the world, I just wanted to explore something that I was interested in and where I felt like there was a little bit of a gap in the market. And that was typography for a mainstream audience. Of course, I hadn't really thought it through that the mainstream audience didn't yet know they wanted to know about typography. So (laughs) it's not the smartest business decision I ever made, (laughs) but it's just fun and it's interesting. And 
one year out ended up being, as you can see, it, it keeps going. And within two years, I'd had the most amazing experiences and I'd met just some of the most incredible people. And the idea that I could start writing books and start exploring all of this and make a difference just to a few people. If I can make a few people fall in love with typography, if I can just ask a few pertinent questions that get that kind of change the conversation to something that involves a little bit more critical thinking, it just seems like it's worth doing. And it's also just addictively good fun because it's lots and lots of rabbit holes that I keep falling down. <laughs> so yeah, so I started and within a year I hadn't even thought about stopping because there's just constantly these new projects on the go and new people, new collaborations, new interesting things to do. I think that, you know, knowledge of knowing that you can turn regular people that maybe are interacting with type into font lovers and type lovers. I mean, there's certainly people in our league community that aren't designers, but just love fonts and like love the history, love the variety and so much about it. And I think back on my education and design school and so much of typography, especially the first year is like, okay, sit down and trace this Garamond. You're going to learn so much about typography after 15 hours with tracing paper, tracing Garamond and Univer. And yes, I did. And yes, we learned about the classification system that the Vox A type I is getting very outdated at this point. And the moments that I really did fall in love with typography is I remember reading Just My Type, I think by Simon Garfield, and that connects everything. It connects pop culture, it connects cultural zeitgeist to typography. And that is so much more engaging. And you can engage so many more people with typography through talking about it in a much broader landscape. And that's so important. I wish I had why fonts matter when I was learning typography because it does help you learn the more soft skills of typography. Whereas like we don't necessarily need to know how every angle of a serif translates into a font. We need to know what will these typefaces make people feel? What are inherent biases when they see these typefaces? Even the idea of, you know, Mike and I talk about this too. Typefaces with really like sharp corners feel uncomfortable because we don't see that in the real world. Things are a lot softer in the real world. So having that knowledge being shared with so many people, I think is very important and is often overlooked because there's so many gatekeepers in the field that think it should all be like very traditional and historically taught. Yeah, I have to say I spend so much of my time outside of the design community. And I agree there are a lot of gatekeepers but the people who don't like what I do, they're not my audience. They don't need me. They've already fallen in love with typography in their own way. My job, as I see it, is to is just to make people fall in love, take that first step. The minute you start noticing letters, um, you start seeing them when you're walking around. You start thinking about, oh, that one, just how Christian type can be. That one suddenly takes me back to childhood memories of this and that and that. Um, and it's only once you've fallen in love with it that you should then start tracing type and thinking. And that's only if you really want to go into being a hardcore type designer or logo designer. It feels upside down. It's not the way to make somebody love it. It's the way to make somebody think that, oh, it's like going to the dentist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the way that you talk to your audience, especially in Why Fonts Matter, is so approachable. And feels like you've been doing this for ages, but you said that kind of deciding to write a book was a big undertaking. Um, I'm curious what advice you would give to other designers or educators that are interested in creating an educational resource like a book or a workshop, but are intimidated by the undertaking. 
So the book took me about six to eight months to write, but it was based on years of experience. It wasn't that I just sat down and thought, I'm going to write this. So I had already been doing loads and loads of events. I'd had conversations with so many people. I'd done a lot of the research. So a lot of the things in the chapters are things that I know are really engaging, because if you come into my studio, I'll give you jars of smells and I will ask you to pair those with typefaces or I will just or uh, I will give you a record with a weird label on it and say what kind of music do you think that is so I play all of these games constantly and having seen how people respond to them that that's why I put those into the book so in terms of what I would suggest it would be first of all just to listen talk to as many people as possible and really listen whatever we're experts in we're already experts in it and it's hard for us to understand what somebody else needs to know for them to get engaged so again going back to all of the workshops I was doing online last year it was so brilliant because I could see real time what was landing people were asking questions about what they didn't understand some things were just going flat so it's like oh nobody's interested in that other things were things that really surprised me would suddenly become this huge engaging conversation and I would discover that this tiny little thing was actually really fascinating and maybe people had lots of different opinions so you'd start asking you'd start a really big conversation so I think just talking, 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 and then just practicing it as many times as you can. So I taught at um, the London College of Communication. So that's the University of Art, the Arts in London. I taught a year long experimental typography course for six years. So teaching that, again, it's just lots and lots of practice, but under the banner of an institution who taught me to how to teach. And then I've taught workshops for the DNAD. And again, they teach you how to teach. And with the book, even though it was self-published at the same time, I was writing another book with Lawrence King and they taught me how to write a book. So find your mentors. There are mentors everywhere. So practice, but there are so many people who are happy to teach us. And the other thing that I'm sure you noticed with Why Fonts Matter is it's full, it's riddled with references from other people. I never pretended to be an expert. If there's something I want to know, I will do my own research, but then I'll go and talk to lots of other experts as well and make sure that it's not just me coming up with something weird, make sure that it really is grounded and useful. So I think those would be my three things. So practice, research, and then linking to other experts to make sure that you're doing something that's useful. That's great. I especially feel like in Why Fonts Matter, the book feels uniquely you and it couldn't have been written by anyone else or designed by anyone else. And that's something I have really appreciated about it. We have a few more questions that are some weekly typographic classics for the podcast that I'm very excited to hear your answers on. So we (laughs) hear about amazing people like you, Sarah, that have accomplished so much, have engaged so many audiences that are really providing so much great information and insights to the typographic community. And it just looks like success after success after success to a lot of us. But we're curious, what has been a challenge or the hardest part of your experience in the creative field so far? Firstly, success is a myth. It's social media. We only post about the things that look great. <laughs> a lot, So much of what I do falls flat. It's really experimental. That Patreon space is where it really is completely experimental. So when we look at each other, I think just always know that we're all human beings and we're all messing up as much of the time as, as anybody else. Oh, I think there've been loads of things that have been difficult, but 
I think as creatives, those are the best things that can happen to us, throw us a challenge. And that's what we rise to. And those are the times where we create something really exciting. So I think one of the most difficult moments for me in the last eight, nine years was March 2020, when I run an events and workshop company, <laughs> when overnight back in March, everything got cancelled. So then the rest of my year was cancelled overnight. And I spent two or three weeks, I think, like everybody else, just sitting there in shock going, uh, <laughs> I don't really know how to readjust, recalibrate to this new world. And then suddenly Zoom. So I just got myself online and did three, four, five workshops a week. I felt like a band starting out. So the very first ones I did, would anybody be in the audience? Will I just be performing to myself? <laughs> and then gradually, the more you do, the more people get what you're doing. So I built up an audience through that. And it's turned out to be the most amazing thing because I now have this tried and tested portfolio of workshops and events. I know exactly how they work. I can pad them out. I can add extras to them. I know which bits people are going to engage with. They now work online. They work in person. And without all of that happening, I wouldn't have had this chance to really, really practice and hone everything. So it was a really difficult time. But I think anything difficult, if you sit there and you work out, okay, this is what's happened. What can I do with it? So that would be my answer, I'd say, to pretty much all of those situations. Was it difficult in that moment to keep going? More than just thinking of how to adjust, was it also like a moment? I know a lot of people that was like a very emotional moment of, should I keep doing this? Can I keep doing this? Did you have a piece like that in your head? Everything got cancelled, so I couldn't. They, I do live events, and the last live event I'd done was at, at the beginning of March, and it had already felt really weird having so many people as an international event, and we all felt really uncomfortable. And I remember thinking, this is the last time I want to do this because I don't feel like I can be responsible for all of these people in the room. And then just, it felt like it happened so quickly. I mean, it didn't. We knew it was coming, but I think it just, it was such a different headspace. So no, it was just absolutely no choice. And I spent the first two or three weeks just writing, a, making a coloring book with my nephew because it just, it was something tangible that we could both do together. Mm. <laughs> and I think everybody was just sitting there like, Whew. and then after that, it was just, okay, I've got to pay the bills. <laughs> it was just pure practicality of, right, how, how do I carry on an events company? And there's this thing called Zoom. Wow. <laughs> <It's> amazing. <laughs> So how yeah. about you guys? Well, how did you feel? So to ask that question, I'm I'm guessing, Micah, that you must have felt like that or gone through those emotions. To be honest, I personally didn't. I think the more I talk to people, the more I'm realizing that that's a little rare. And I knew a lot of people who did feel that way. And so that's kind of why I sometimes ask when this topic comes up, because I had been used to working online most of my life anyway. And a lot of the things that we were already trying to do even with the league, we'd never been in the same place or almost rarely had been in the same place anyway, and at least never been in the same place with our audience. Like we had tried in person once and it fell flat. So all of our virtual stuff was what we were used to anyway. But I know so many people who, like you were saying, just were not inherently adjusted to surviving online from the get-go. And I think I know a lot of people too who were like, I don't know if I can keep doing this business. Some people found a way around that and and thrived like you did. And some people were sort of like, you know what? I can't figure it out. I don't know. For me, it's so important to be in a room full of people. Everything I do is 
highly immersive, incredibly multi-sensory. It's all about me getting audience feedback. So it took a lot, lot to work out how can I trans. So to start with, I didn't think that was possible on Zoom. And it took a while to work out, okay, if I send you a BYO list of things to bring in advance, so you're going to bring some smells, you're going to bring something to drink, something to taste, so you can still take part in the experiments. And then I worked out how to get you to look really close to the screen so that you're actually engaging. And then chat. I love chat. When we go back to big talks, I want somebody to bring a chat facility in because the way that that gives you the the ability to communicate with the audience in a way that you can't when it's just a big huge like 2000 mm. people sitting in front of you is super cool and um, the shyest people can ask questions and even when it's a massive audience you just see the ripple of response you tell a joke and then people go ha and you can see just the laugh coming down or you ask a question and you can't see all the individual answers, but you just see this kind of flow and you get this sense of the mood that's happening. It's completely amazing, but not something I would have anticipated had I not have done it. Mm-hmm. You need to do more live events and I'll come and compare one. We'll make it really super fun and we'll get everybody sniffing, tasting, playing with, experimenting with different typefaces. <laughs> I do definitely think there's an opportunity for that. I think that's a cool thing. And, yeah, and sure drinking as well. The minute you add <laughs> wine or gin or, or beer to it, then it's loads of fun. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. no, fair. Mike and I used to attend uh, Type Thursday in New York together when uh, he was here. And even like getting to see people and talk about type in an in-person way, there it is like there's nothing quite exactly like it. So I understand. As you kind of talk about the transition that you had from big in-person events to virtual workshops and things that you've learned from the workshops you want to bring back to events. What do you think the future of type tasting looks like? Oh, I, I've been pondering on this. I sort of never really know what it is because so much of what I do is about reacting and what I feel excited about at any moment in time. Um, everybody seems to think that events are starting up again now, but frankly they're not (laughs) nobody can travel so I'm hoping that I can do a lot more online things over the next two or three months because they they're also I they give you such an amazing opportunity to speak to people to speak to an international audience a lot of the time what I'll do at the end of an event is invite a small group of people to stick around so we then have a chat as if we went to the pub afterwards and having people from all around the world who would never usually have met listening to them comparing observations and experiences is amazing. And also just the accessibility. So not everybody can come to a conference and suddenly just so many different people can come along to these things. And I don't want to lose any of that. But I am really looking forward to going back to doing installations and real life, just once we can, real life events again, when they feel safe, where you can actually be in the same room and ask people questions. I haven't really done much research in the last year and a half because I just can't do it online. I need to be in a room. I need to be just handing you smells and things and <laughs> gathering up all the all the results. And yeah, what I don't really know what the future is. Oh, I'm, I am working on another book, but it's going to take me about two years to write because it's the biggest research project ever which I hadn't naively I hadn't realized how much research was going to go into it but and it's going to be amazing but I can't talk about it yet oh my goodness what a tease my follow-up question was killed (laughs) so fun wow well is this at least like I'm sure you can say is this a self-published book or working with a publisher and other people 
I'm putting together the proposal for a publisher. There's a publisher who has published one of my other books who I'm really hoping that they will be excited by it. They've liked the initial conversations that we've had. They like the direction it's going in because I would really like this to get on. My aim is to get a book that's not on the design shelves. I want it to be on the regular shelves. So I can't do that with a self-published book. And also writing so hard, me doing the marketing and everything else as well is just really hard. But you can guess at the theme that might be inspiring it because you know what I do in the Curiosity Club. So that's kind of where a lot of the ideas are being kind of played out. So you can get a hint. I like the sound of that. And actually, I've got a question. what book doesn't yet exist that you would be interested to read in typographic terms? Oh, boy. You know, I know that there's a handful of books that are out there about making type from a unintimidated perspective. And there's a few people that we have talked to recently who are like starting to work on that. But basically, I think what doesn't exist yet and could is some version of everything you need to know how to make a font, whether you're a designer or not. Hmm. It's very Micah answer. (laughs) That would be a great book. I'm not the expert to write that, but that would be. I mean, me neither, but. (laughs) Maybe it's you. Maybe that's your book. (laughs) Yeah, Micah. (laughs) I would have to say, this is very in tune with who I am and what I like researching, but. I just think there needs to be bigger deep dives into how certain fonts ended up in certain pockets of culture and that are often overlooked. I mean, this goes back to like my one of my favorite nerd alerts I did on the podcast about how black letter became used in hip hop culture. And that's something that no one has written anything really that formal about. I've did my best to trace the history. I looked into a lot of things and a lot of it rooted from black letter having a history in Mexico and then being brought over with graffiti tags in actually like LA gangs and being appropriated there as like anti-establishment and then like also being used in motorcycle gangs in America and maybe that's how it potentially traveled across the country. Almost also a money so it's dollar bills as well it's it's bling. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly see and that's a per- perspective I didn't even bring to that and I only had so much research I was trying to connect these dots and there's so many things that are in subcultures that aren't being examined that I think speaks to a larger history of type that I would just like love to see people People deep dive into. Uh, yeah, that's incredibly fascinating. So this, I think, is maybe a conversation we have to carry on another time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but in terms of maybe it's a project that we both do or we, we find a way of doing. And it's, it touches, there are overlaps with what I do. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Sarah, let's do it. I'm suddenly so. picturing like the Freakonomics of typography. What that would be, yeah, that's the book to, <laughs> that I wish I could write. <laughs> That'd be incredible, incredible collaboration. All right, Sarah, we're going to be continuing that conversation. All right, last formal question to end on a somewhat inspiring note. Uh, Who's a person right now in the type and design world that you admire? There are loads of people, mostly right now, I'd say the really small type foundries who are doing really exciting experimental things. I think the big type foundries, they they kind of can't move that quickly. Um, You mentioned... Chi earlier on. So I think James Edmondson, the way he writes about his typefaces for Ono Typeco, um, if you look at the way he writes about how Chi came about and how it was this mashup of two different typefaces and all of his kind of psychedelic, but he ignores the rules and remakes them. So I, I think 
some of those, some uh, there's a lot of little tight foundries like that who are doing really super cool stuff. But also, as I said, I try to get outside of the typography world as much as possible. So there are lots of other people who I think are really inspiring and who really influence a lot of what I do. So you have people like Tasha from AVM Curiosities who make scented exhibitions in museums. So I do collaborations with her. Professor Charles Spence, who heads up the Crossmodal Research Lab at Oxford Uni, who is the person who helps me with a lot of my research and to basically tells me how to do research because I'm a, I'm not a scientist. Um, Oh, we've also got there's lots of sort of chefs and pianists. So anybody who so communication isn't just type. Communication is it comes we absorb it through so many different ways. So so seeing what all of these people are doing, and I think another really important group of people who I I think are really interesting are all of the sign writers. So sign writing has had such a profound influence on typography, but it's not massively acknowledged so everything from serifs from so many of the styles that we use actually come from the sign painter's brush but it's always seen as this kind of craft and it's not intellectual enough so looking at what they're doing um and what an amazing skill and how it's such a big resurgence and also you can go to sign writing classes and they're really super amazing um so i, I think all of those are the people who are who excite me right now I knew we get some good new and interesting sources of inspiration from that. I'm like, Sarah's not going to have a conventional answer. We are going to get some new people thrown into the mix. <laughs> well, that covers everything from my end, Sarah. This was such an amazing conversation. I can see us having many more conversations in the future about all the interesting nerdy nooks, crannies into typography and the way it impacts people in our society. And I really love the work that you're doing in the Type Tasting Curiosity Club that I'm a part of. If our listeners want to support you, want to follow you, want to get to know what you're doing a little bit more, where can they find you? Oh, so first of all, join the Type Tasting Curiosity Club on Patreon because it would actually be great to have a few more people in there. It's where I put all of the experimental stuff out. So it's so it's a fun kind of space. Also, just find me as Type Tasting on social media. So Instagram, Twitter, the website. Um, and I've got more online events going on. So that's where you'll find out about all of those. You can edit that bit out. <laughs> that felt too self-promo. <laughs> No, no, no. We oh, we want people useful. to find you. <laughs> it is useful. It's super useful. Awesome. Okay. Well, come to my events online at Type Tasting. <laughs> and that's something anyone around the world can do. That's the amazing part of that. So all of our listeners can check that out. All right, Sarah, thank you again. This has been incredible. I think our listeners are going to learn so much about you and want to get into your deep rabbit holes after this. <laughs> thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And we could carry on talking for hours. 